in lane three. Dave Waddle with the golf cap from the United States. He started wearing that golf cap because he had real long hair that used to come down in his eyes, and then he kept it as a superstition. Two laps around. They run in lanes for the first 100 meters, and then they'll break. Boyd is looking strong again at the moment already. On the inside, we have Arshanov. Arshanov in the lead as they break, but Boyd on the outside is going for the lead right now. Uko, the other Kenyan, on the inside, and Waddle is way back exactly where he was in the semifinals. We don't know right now whether he's just trying to stay out of trouble. It'll be a few more hundred yards before we know if Dave is seriously injured or really just logging back to stay out of trouble. He's not too bad because it was quite a fast pace through that first 200 meters. And as we said, here go the Kenyans charging for the lead, coming up to the bell lap, Boyd and Uku. Okay, and right with them is Andy Carter of Great Britain, Dieter Fromm of East Germany. Those are the four right now. And they're on the bell lap, and the split is 52.3. If Dave could just pull up here and get on the outside of Orzanov, he would have him boxed in perfectly. Let's hope Dave makes a move down this back stretch. The Kenyans running like a mirror reflection of each other. First and second, Fromm there he right goes. there with him. There's Arzanov from the Soviet Union going up to the lead now. There goes Arzanov, the favorite, taking the lead. Dave Waddle is making his bid. He's not in too bad position right now. I think Dave's in great position on this. At this point, he's in perfect position on the outside. Good striking distance for this last 100, 200 meters. Stand by for the kick. Of, stand by for the kick of Dave Waddle. If he's got it, he could make it. But he's going to catch Arzanov. Stand by, Kenya. And here he goes. This is the bid for a gold medal of Dave Waddle. He's got one Kenyan. I think he's got to get it. that that's pretty incredible isn't it Dave Waddle going for the gold in the 800 meters in the 1972 Olympics some of you were alive for that <laughs> I was I was alive I think I was six months old in that Olympics I don't remember a whole lot from it but unbelievable I mean he's he's going down that back stretch and he's still 30 seconds to go in the race he's still in last place he starts to move up by the time he's 200 meters from the end, he's moved up to sixth place. And did you hear what the announcer says? I think Dave's in great position. Are you kidding me? He's not in great position. The guy in first place is in great position. Ten seconds later, Jim McKay, legendary voice for ABC Sports for such a long time, he says, stand by for the kick. And Dave Waddle kicks it in. He gets all the way up to fourth place with just 10 seconds to go in the race. Still, the leader's like 20 feet in front of him. I don't know, somehow, inexplicably, miraculously, he chases down the leader and gets to the finish line first. Unbelievable, one of the greatest comebacks in Olympic history. Stand by for the kick. Over the last 40 days here at Hope, we've been on the Jesus run. And we've been taking a look, hopefully with some fresh eyes and open hearts and open minds at the life and the teaching and the miracles of Jesus. Jesus had quite a run until Friday. Friday they nailed him to a cross. Friday, they threw him in a tomb and rolled a giant, massive, heavy stone in front of it. On Friday, the enemies of Jesus are pointing at him and laughing and saying, I think Jesus is in great position, flat on his back in the grave. 
And when it seemed like there was no possibility for a comeback, when it seemed like the triumph was going to be the forces of evil and sin and death, it's almost like a voice thundered from heaven, stand by for the kick. And the earth began to shake and the stone was rolled away and the power of God's love raised Jesus from death to life. And we're here today to celebrate that. He is risen. We're here to celebrate the power and the promise of the resurrection, and we're just going to get right into it. Some of you are here today, and you need Easter to be real. You need the resurrection to be real this year. Maybe recently you've lost someone that you love, that you care about. Maybe someone is facing their death. It's just a matter of time. And you need to know that you can put your hope, that you can put your faith in the power and the promise of the resurrection. And if that's not where you are these days, the day is going to come in your life. It will come for all of us when we wonder, when we question, when we doubt, can I really trust the resurrection? It's been kind of a sad couple of weeks around death here in Iowa. There's that family in Creston goes on vacation. There's a gas leak and parents and both children die because of that. I think yesterday was the funeral in Creston. Think of the grief and the sadness and the questions around that. Earlier this week, there was a funeral in Pella for Kirk Corver, 27 years old. Uh, his father is a pastor at a church there. It's the church I went to when I was uh, in college at Central College. And so Kirk has several brothers. One of them is Kyle. He's a member of the Cleveland Cavaliers, gets to play with LeBron James, and all of these uh, brothers spoke at Kirk's funeral. Here's part of what Kyle said. How do you make it without Jesus? When you find yourself walking through the valley of the shadow of death, how do you make it without Jesus? How do you make it without the hope that he gives? The brothers spoke and then the parents spoke. I mean, I can hardly imagine standing up to speak at one of my kids' weddings. What's it like to stand up and speak at one of your kids' funerals? Lots of people, too many people in this congregation have had to do just that. Lane, his mother, spoke first, spoke of the heartache, the sadness, the grief, the devastation. Generation after generation, people have had questions about death, what happens to us after we die. A generation after the first Easter, after Jesus' resurrection, a group of people gathered in a Greek city called Thessalonica. They've got questions about death, and the Apostle Paul is trying to answer some of those questions. About 2,000 years later, this grieving father, Kevin Corver, returns to these words, the funeral of his son, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. Paul writes, you will not grieve like people who have no hope. Pay attention to what he is saying. You're going to grieve. The appropriate, the healthy response when we lose someone we love, when we face our own death, is grief and sadness and maybe even a little bit of anger and confusion and what's this all about? You will grieve, but you will not grieve like people who have no hope. You will stand by for the kick. The resurrection is this powerful, powerful reminder to us. Every time we gather together for worship, we're reminded death is not the finish line. We're standing by for the kick. We call this church Lutheran Church of Hope. There's a reason we call it hope. This world needs some hope, doesn't it? Our lives need some hope. There's all sorts of things that we face in life, not just the end of our life, not just death, all sorts of things we face in life that cause us to lose hope. Marriages begin and end. Businesses open and close. People, dreams are birthed within us and we chase down those dreams and, and sometimes they fail. Sometimes they fade away and hope gets lost. People get stuck in 
addictive patterns and behaviors and it can cause them to feel trapped and in prison and like there's no way out and we've lost all hope. What do you do when hope begins to die? What do you do when you're losing hope that things might change in your life? Well, one of the reasons we gather for worship is to look once again at the empty tomb. And the empty tomb is this powerful reminder to us about reality. There's a guy named Richard Rohr, a Jesuit priest in New Mexico. He talks about Easter this way. Jesus' resurrection is a statement about how reality works. Always moving toward resurrection. It's just the way the universe is set up. Resurrection always follows death. And so the Easter story is not just some story to try to make us feel better when we're going through times in our lives when things are not going the way we want them to go. The Easter story is the deepest, truest reality about life. Everything is always moving toward resurrection. And we see it if we're paying attention. I mean, this time of year in Iowa, outside is just gross, isn't it? I mean, it's just dead and lifeless, but we know, we know it's about to burst forth into spring and new life and vibrant colors. Resurrection's coming. People who are walking the road to recovery, they understand the reality of the resurrection. You die to an old way of life so that you can be resurrected into a whole new way of living. And if you've been paying attention as we've been going through the gospel of Matthew these last 40 days, one of the things that we've seen about Jesus, this is just what Jesus does. He's putting an end. He's helping old ways die so that he can usher in a new way. It's no wonder that the followers of Jesus were not first called Christians. They were called followers of the way. The resurrection and the empty tomb, it, it tells us Jesus is the way to eternal life. He's the way to heaven, life that never ends, even after our earthly death. The resurrection and the empty tomb also tell us Jesus is the way to abundant life. Abundant life, the very best way to live life between our birth and our death. Jesus knows the way to that kind of life. And so one of the questions that would be important for us to ask is, Jesus always inviting us to follow him into that way of life. Well, what exactly is the way of life Jesus is inviting us into? It's, it's a way of life where the resurrection is good news and it gives us hope in death, but it's also a way of life that is good news and gives us hope in life. So as a way of talking about the way of life Jesus is inviting us into, I want to talk about video games for a little while. I think that will make a ton of sense to you in just about five minutes. So if you're new to Hope, one of the things I would want you to know about me, I love movies and I love sports. And so a couple of weeks ago, I'm listening to the Dan Patrick Show, Sports Talk Radio Show, and they were talking to NBA players who are fascinated by, and, and actually a movie star, someone who used to be on Entourage, they love playing some video game that's taking the country by storm called Fortnite. I'd never even heard of it. So they're playing Fortnite, and they spend hours and hours, all their free time, playing sports night. And then they started talking about some, one of the best Fortnite players in the world. His name is Ninja. You know parents named their kid Ninja? No, the parents did They named him Tyler, but he took this name Ninja. He's 26 years old from Illinois. He takes a video of himself playing this video game Fortnite, streams it out over something called Twitch, whatever that is, and thousands and thousands of people watch Ninja play Fortnite. He's figured out how to monetize it. He makes $500,000 a month playing a video game. So parents, I think that gives kids permission, right? This is your retirement account, mom and dad. No, 
I'm not sure we should extrapolate it. It's just crazy though, isn't it? Absolutely crazy. I was thinking when I started out in ministry, I was a youth pastor in Des Moines, the mid to late 90s. And, you know, a lot of student ministry stuff happens midweek on, on Wednesday night. So my day off was Thursday. And in that time, there were two or three locations around central Iowa, something called Loco Joe's Nickel Arcade. Any of you remember Loco Joe's Nickel Arcade? And so you could go, $5 entry fee, and then all the games in the place were a nickel to play. And I spent, wasted, most of my days off playing Attack from Mars, a pinball. You'd have to line up your nickels on it to say, I've got next. And anyway, it was the first pinball machine I'd ever figured out there's actually a purpose. You're like trying to accomplish something. It's not just keeping the ball alive. It's advancing to the next levels and all. I just had a, I could have streamed myself playing Attack from Mars. I'd be a wealthy young man about now or middle-aged man or who knows. Almost. Oh, you remember the first video game you ever played? I don't know what the first video game you ever played. In my generation, it was Pong. Pong is the first video game we ever played. I never played it on a machine quite this nice. Our parents would play cards with their friends, the Glaces, on Friday nights. And we'd go over to the Glaces, and they had an Atari system with a joystick. And we got to play Pong. And my brothers and I are like, there is no way that anyone could ever create or invent something more exciting than this game. I was talking uh, with Eli, our discipleship minister, about Pong. He says, have you seen the documentary that the Discovery Channel did on, on the history of video games? I said, no, that sounds perfect. So watch this clip uh, as they're talking about what was going on in history that led to the development of Pong. Take a look. The Cold War was nothing but a simulation to begin with. There is no war to study. There's only these possible future wars, these uh, fears of war, these probable outcomes. Unlike today's video games, there was nothing anyone could do to control the missiles in these terrifying scenarios. People like predictable worlds with predictable outcomes, or at least controllable outcomes, or at least the perception that if you got the skill, you could control it. That's very satisfying, because the world in general is pretty uncontrollable, and a little bit daunting sometimes. In 1958, a young nuclear physicist forever changed how the world viewed computers. William Willie Higginbotham who had worked on the first atomic bomb, turned two rudimentary lines and a bouncing ball into the first interactive entertainment experience on a computer. Tennis for two. Every weekend they would have these contests to see who could come up with the coolest thing. Yeah, Willie Higginbotham came up with this idea that you could take an oscilloscope and make a tennis game out of it. It was an expression of a kind of rebellious adolescent energy working alongside the military projects taking this most expensive piece of equipment at the time and repurposing it to play games. Man, there's just something fast. Well, I think we should have a message series. We're starting a new message series called Faith in Film. We should follow that up with Faith in Video Games, shouldn't we? I mean, the height of the Cold War. Everyone's freaking out. The world is out of control. You ever feel like your world or your life is out of control? And people are looking for some way to feel like they have some kind of control, and that's part of what they love about video games. If I can gain enough skill, I can kind of control this thing. So it leads to the development of Pong, which is not an exciting game at all. It's super simple, super easy, this digital paddle, and you just hit this digital ball back. I hit it, you hit it, I hit it, you hit it. Super, super simple and easy, easy game. There's a way of life that's a lot like Pong. 
And Jesus talks about it in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. You have heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You hit me, I hit you. You hurt me, I hurt you back. It's one way to live life. Getting back at the people who hurt us, paying back the people who take something from us, that is one way to go through life. And Jesus is saying a lot of people kind of set up their life. It's this nonstop, endless game of Pong. And I hate you because of what you said to me in third grade, and I'm never going to forget it. And our families don't talk to each other. I don't remember why. Probably something that happened when we were watching the Olympics back in 72. But we just don't talk to each other anymore. And it's just this cycle that continues nonstop. One of the people I was reading and, and listening to, the language they used around this is an eye for an eye kind of a mindset in a society. It keeps the violence in circulation. It keeps the violence. Somebody's always hurt and ready to pay back. It keeps the violence in circulation. So Jesus shows up and he says, you have heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, but I want to show you another way. I want to show you a different way. You've heard it said, but verse 39, he says, I say, do not resist an evil person. And a lot of people interpret this to mean Jesus is saying, it is not faithful to live a life of revenge and retaliation and paying people back for their misdeeds. The faithful way to live is a life of being a doormat. Just letting people walk all over you. Because after all, this world doesn't really matter. What matters is heaven. What matters is eternity. So if you're getting hurt, if people are mistreating you in your life, just let them do it. Two ways to live life. One is this aggressive way, like payback, get back at people who hurt us. I'm going to have that mindset that's going to be the, what drives my life. The second way to live life is this passive kind of mindset, letting people walk all over our backs. I really got two options in front of me. I can be a fighter or I can be a coward. These are the two choices. Which way are you going to go? And Jesus is like, no, there's a third way. There's the third option that's available to you. Let me try to teach you about it. You've heard it said eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. I say, do not resist an evil person. And then let's read together what Jesus teaches at the end of this verse. It's on the screen. Read it out loud with me. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. So one of the things I love about Easter is people gather, so many people gather. I mean, people who love Jesus and love to shout, he is risen, and love to sing the songs and raise their arms. They're Jesus freaks who gather to worship on Easter. And then there are those of you who were dragged here by your Jesus freak parents or grandparents, but they made a deal with you, right? If you come to church with me, I'll take you out for dinner. Or we'll go shopping or something. So win-win. Whatever got you here today, I want you to know we are so glad that you are here. And... We all have a lot of things in common. It doesn't matter if you're a Jesus person or not, Bible person or not, uh, church person or not. We all have so many things in common. One of the things we all have in common, we're all familiar with the phrase, turn the other cheek. We've all heard that. We know what it means. But do we know what Jesus meant when he said, turn the other cheek? And I want to dig into that today. And to do that, I'm going to need a couple of volunteers. Do I have Bruce Dunn? Thank you for volunteering. Ken Pilch? Oh, that would be great. Come on up, Bruce and Ken. How about a round of applause for our volunteers? Yay, happy Easter. Aren't you glad you came to church today? Here, here's what I want you to do. You stand here, Bruce, and Ken, you stand right here. Well, actually, wait. Are either of you left-handed? No. Left-handed? Okay, this is good. Not because I don't like left-handed people, but it will further illustrate Jesus' point. 90% of all people are right-handed, 90%. And this has actually led to interesting, and we don't have time to get into it, 
interesting sociology, even a little bit of theology around the left hand. In Jesus' day, a lot of uh, concern about what's clean, what's unclean. Uh, They've discovered in the Dead Sea Scrolls, these ancient scrolls that talk about this community in uh, Jesus' day called the Qumran community. They were followers of the Old Testament law. They had a lot of laws, rules, regulations around what you can and cannot do with your left hand. What uh, most, the only thing you could really do with your left hand uh, was activities that were considered unclean. And if you wonder what that is, I'll talk to you about that later. But uh, (laughs) what I want you to know is most of the time people did not use their left hand. So, We're going to reenact what Jesus is talking about here. (laughs) But no one will get hurt in this Easter reenactment. So stand a little closer. And Bruce, I'm going to ask you to slap Ken on the right cheek. All right? Think we can do that? Very slowly, like slow motion. Yeah, that'd be great. Okay. Stop. Very good. Notice what he's doing. He's not using his left hand. You can't use your left hand. He's using his right hand. But he's not doing it with the palm of his right hand because then Ken would kidney shot. So it's the backhand. When Jesus says, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, he's saying they're going to slap you with the back of their right hand. Okay, break for a second. (laughs) Just calm down, would you? (laughs) Part of the other thing we need to understand culturally, culturally, in Jesus' day, it's hard for us to fathom because we know all people are created equal. But in Jesus' day, they did not believe that. Actually, come a little closer. In Jesus' day, there were superiors and there were inferior people. Romans, superior to the people of Israel. Masters, superior to slaves. Can't imagine a culture like this, but they actually believed males were superior to females. Adults were superior to children. And in order to live in a hierarchical culture like that, there had to be real clear laws and rules around how do we make sure people stay where they're supposed to be. So the slap, the backhanded slap on the right cheek, it's not intended to injure. It's intended to insult, to humiliate, to degrade, to say, Ken, would you please stay in your place? You're inferior, he's superior. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, now let's stop for a second. Do you think Jesus is like saying thumbs up to that way of living and relating to people? Does that sound like masters would backhand slap slaves and husbands would slap wives and parents would slap? Do you think Jesus is saying, yeah, that's what you should? That doesn't sound consistent with his teaching at all, does it? If that's not what Jesus is talking about, what is he talking about? He's actually talking about power. One of the other things they've discovered about that culture is if you wanted to engage in a fist fight with someone, you could only do that with someone who was your equal, equal standing on this. So back together. Jesus says, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek, offer the other cheek, left cheek. Okay, here's the left cheek. It's wide open for Bruce to do what? Slap it? How? Try to slap, try to slap. No, no, you can't use your left hand. Oh, he's got a fist, right? <laughs> nah, so that's perfect. That's exactly what you would do if someone turned the other cheek. They're opening you up for, let me show. But you can't do that unless you want to say they're my equal. And then that would disrupt the whole system. Now, power has been shifted. When Jesus says, turn the other cheek, he says, tell this person I'm a child of God. And I do not deserve to be treated the way you are treating me. Round of applause for our two volunteers. Thanks for playing along, you guys. Happy Easter. Yeah, thank you for shaking. Now, someone watch them on the way out. No. Jesus is just getting started.
Look what he says in the next verse, verse 40. If you're sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. In Jesus' day, some, some estimates are they would be taxed as much as 90%. Try to live a life where you don't fall into debt when you're being taxed 90%. And so most people fell into debt. And the way it worked, the creditor could take you to court if you couldn't pay your debt, and they could sue you for the shirt off your back. Now, in Jesus' day, they didn't say shirt and coat. They had two different terms, but basically, it was an outer garment and an undergarment. If someone sues you for your outer garment, give them your undergarment as well, Jesus says. Old Testament has laws around this. You, you can do this, but at night, you have to give back the garment so that they have enough clothes to be warm. Jesus is saying, this is, this is a system that's unjust. People are being ridiculously taxed. This is a system that oppresses the people who actually need help. And so if you want to participate in this system, Jesus says, Here's, let's play the game. If they ask for your shirt, give your coat. If they ask for your undergarment, give your outer garment as well. If you only have two garments and you give them both away, what are you suddenly? Naked would be the answer. And in Jesus' day, in Jesus' day, there's shame connected with nakedness. Shame's not on the person who is naked. Shame's on the person viewing the person who is naked. If they ask for your undergarment, give them your outer, you give them both of your garments, now I'm holding your garments and you're standing in front of me naked, shame on me. Shame on me. And now all of a sudden the power is shifted and you give the clothes back. Here, please, put on some clothes. Now I'm actually helping the person who needs help. And it starts to change the whole way you relate. And Jesus isn't done. Goes on in the next verse. Uh, if a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. The soldiers that might demand this were the Roman soldiers occupying the region. And they're trying to make sure you know you are inferior. So they would say, hey, you carry my gear. Jesus says, okay, let's play the game. They ask you to carry the gear. We'll do that. But remember, there are limits on the ways in which the soldiers can humiliate you. They can ask you. There's rules, laws, Roman laws. You can carry it, ask them to carry it for a mile, but if you ask them to carry it for more than a mile, that's not okay. And the soldier can get in trouble. So Jesus says, start carrying it. Carry it, carry it. You get to the one mile marker, don't stop. Just keep on walking. And now the soldier's chasing after you. Wait, 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 stop, stop. If you keep going, I'm going to get in trouble. And who has the power in that scenario? It's been shifted to the person who's supposedly inferior. The next thing that Jesus does is he teaches love of enemies. I hope you're starting to see what Jesus is doing is he's saying there's one way that everybody's been living, but there's another way. There's a new way. There's a better way that I'm trying to introduce. Like, can we stop? Can we give up these categories of who's in and who's out and superior and inferior? And Paul will write, because of Jesus, there's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, Roman or uh, Jew. We're all, we're all one in Jesus. And if we go Jesus' way and do the things that he asks us to do, Love our enemies, pray for those who persecute us, love our neighbor as ourself, lay down our life for our friends. If we start to live in this kind of way, it's going to change things. It did change things. The Roman Empire went away a long, long time ago. The kingdom of God is still advancing. So some of you might be saying, interesting stuff. I might want to look into some of the sociology around the left hand. Man, if you are, that's incredible if you would be thinking that. But what in the world does it have to do with Easter? Here's what it has to do with Easter. The third day makes the third way possible. The third day makes the third way possible. If we believe, 
The power of God's love is strong enough to raise a man from death to life, to overcome the worst thing this world has to throw at us, then my goodness, what is the power of God's love strong enough to accomplish in your life right now today? What dysfunction, what hurt, what hopelessness is the power of God's love strong enough to shake up and to change and to restore and to redeem and to renew? So Jesus has always given us this invitation, follow me into this way of life that leads to eternal life, Follow me also into this way of life that leads to a better way of being human. And make no mistake, the better way, the Jesus way, it's not this easy back and forth pong kind of thing. It's complex, it's complicated, nothing easy about it. It's very difficult. Pick up your cross, deny yourself, follow me, Jesus says. The better way is painful. The better way, a lot of times it's going to feel like you're losing. And we don't like to feel like we're losing. And so Jesus... Here's the invitation, but you got a choice. You can choose to go your way. You can choose to go Jesus' way. I don't know about you, as I kind of reflect on my life and the times when I've chosen to go my way, it hasn't actually turned out very well. It leads to a lot of fear, a lot of worry, anxiety, a sort of this self-protective kind of way, defensive way of living. I end up hurting people instead of loving people. The other thing that I notice as I look back over my life is the truth of these words. Stand by for the kick. That there's a God who is coming after me, chasing after me with a grace that is free, with a love that is amazing. And to say, hey, you messed that one up, invitation still open to come my way, to follow me. I'll set you free. I'll show you a whole new way to live. One of the songs the band sang for us a little bit earlier is a song called Reckless Love. There's no shadow you won't light up, mountain you won't climb up coming after me. There's no wall you won't kick down, lie you won't tear down coming after me. And then it talks about how this overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God is chasing us down. And then we went into that clip of Dave Waddle chasing down the leaders to win the gold medal. Do you believe God is chasing you down? Do you believe God is coming after you? I, I think a lot of people say, yeah, God's coming after me, but it's not with reckless love. It's with anger and God wants to catch me so that God can punish me, so God can point out to me all the ways that I've messed up, so God can say once and for all, you are not good enough. The Easter story tells us nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus goes to the cross. He's beaten and whipped and spat upon and ridiculed and humiliated. And from the cross, he says, Father, forgive them. Three days later, he's raised to life and he doesn't gather his disciples around and say, let's go. Let's go get him. Let's pay him back. He says, we got the opportunity to usher in a whole new way. And he invites us into that. And I was thinking, wouldn't it be great if we could end the service with just this awesome chase scene? I don't know, baby driver, the first six minutes of that or something. Or, uh, or maybe there's like a Steve McQueen chase or Born Identity, Matt Damon, and they're busting through doors and they're going, but all of them didn't quite have the right. So I said to my wife, Wendy, can you think of any good chase scenes in movies? And she goes, immediately, didn't skip a beat. Of course, Notting Hill. <laughs> Romantic comedy? I don't think that's what... So I watched it, and it's just perfect. William, Hugh Grant, he's a bookstore owner in this neighborhood in London, 
and he has the chance encounter meeting with Anna Scott, played by Julia Roberts, world-famous movie star, and they hit it off, and they're trying to figure out how can they make a relationship work, but man, she's so superior, and he's so inferior, at least that's what he thinks, and so she shares her heart with him at one point in the movie, and he says, I don't think it's going to work, and she walks away. And he sits down with his friends, and he's like, hey, I just turned down Julia Roberts. What do you think? Take a look. God's coming after you. And if that doesn't feel like good news, take a look at the story again. He's coming after you with love. He's coming after you with grace. He's coming after you with mercy that's new every morning. He wants you to experience his love and his life. Sometimes we go to Psalm 23 around funerals, around death. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, it's a good psalm for times like that. It's also a good psalm for examining what life is really all about. Surely your goodness and mercy follow me all the days of my life. In the message version of the Bible, he writes this, your beauty and love chase after me every day of my life. Chase after you to set you free from old ways that are robbing you of life, to set you free so you can experience joy and hope and peace and love and life like you've never known. Let's stand together and let's sing this closing song.